Hello and welcome to the Plebeian Power Hour with your hosts, Tiffer and Kim. Today we're going to be talking about the fun and ever-exciting area of unions in America. Yeah, and what kind of got me into this topic, and we'll get into this, is there was a period of time where there were like massive altercations between the unions and the companies and even the government. Oh yeah, it gets... It, this is, I, I cannot say this any more times than I already have, because I say this at the beginning of all of these things, where I say, I know this happened. I didn't know this kind of stuff happened in this way. Even though people have told me, I didn't believe it. And it's really fascinating <laughs> as we go through and find out just how all of these pieces unfolded. And like you said, this is something... It doesn't get talked about that much. Like, this is a big piece of American history, and we really, it, it gets skipped over a lot, but there's some uh, there's some good stuff in here that we had found that we kind of wanted to talk about. So yeah, I'm gonna We get all it. will be better for knowing this. And going back to kind of a history of unions, we're not going to be able to fully get into things, but one of the things that I wanted to bring up was, you know, going back... In 1794, a bunch of Philadelphia shoemakers got together and formed the Federal Society of Journeymen Cordwainers, which is essentially like leather workers. I think it's a type of leather. <laughs> Feels like a name you'd call someone when you're mad. Stupid cordwainer. <laughs> cordwainer. <laughs> It'll now be our thing. <laughs> Every time I'm bunch mad, of cordwainers. Yeah. And. So they had banded together, and there was a lawsuit that was brought against them in 1806, and they ended up losing. And what they were doing, essentially, was intimidating people into using their services. And so in the, the lawsuit, they were basically told that they can't use you know threats, menaces, and other unlawful means to make people go you know, place orders through you know, I'm sorry. Can you just not imagine how that came out when they're like, you'll use our Cordwainer services or you're <laughs> going to get beat. <laughs> and I think they all spoke just like that. <laughs> As a very accurate a representation. Bit, a little bit British in there. Cause this is 1793. Yeah, I mean, we're British. only not British for like a couple dozen years. I mean, less than a around a dozen years at this point. And, and they were basically, they, they had a trial by jury, and the jury decided against them, and they were fined what because ultimately they was like a week's each of wages. one of them. They're all wearing shoes. That's They're right. all like, oh, we don't want to be threatened by these shoemakers. Well, apparently you had a lot of power. Like, you know, the, the other cities and stuff were coming in trying to get their shoe orders filled. And these people ended up with a lot of power and started kind of, you know, similar to maybe like a monopoly. That's I think they started um, abusing it and like you have to come. So you like know, you Adidas ain't your comes shoes. and pounds on your door and is like, yeah. you use our shoes. If you want any cord waning done, it's coming <laughs> through us. And, and Only so the best got... journeymen in the world. <laughs> so that was, I just thought that was interesting that there was, you know, very early in American <laughs> history. Amused. Uh, an example and and then some of it starts to change is then you get into where you know in the industrial revolution you start getting the factories and that's where Mm -hmm. i think everything changes everything 
changes with the introduction of kind of this mass production in the factories. Right, which happened in in the 1830s, 40s, 50s is when everything's kind of amping up. Because if you remember back to the Civil War, the North has all of this industrial revolution happening and the South doesn't really do all that much. So that was a big, a big difference. Yeah, and speaking of that, in Massachusetts in 1834, you had one of the first big, strikes uh and it was uh, kind of a there was a female labor reform association so these women who were working in the textile mills up there get together and all start striking for higher pay so there was kind of a um a, a recession going on they get their pay cut and they tried to strike in 1834 and it only lasted a couple days and then in 1836 they uh striked again and kind of want they won you know a, a pay increase essentially and so that was one of the first examples that i could really see in this kind of industrial age where this workers mm-hmm. got together and striked and were able to get a change in outcome interesting that it was ladies yeah i they thought probably that too. band more together than the men folk do and so they set a precedent yeah, the other thing that I kind of wanted to get into just as for some context was the idea of these company towns. And so that was one of the things that happened in these textile mills, but also was really big for throughout the whole Industrial Revolution sort of period until potentially the invention of the automobile, is you want to have a factory where you got thousands of workers. They need a place to stay, so these factory owners would build a company town around the factory. And that's where most of the workers worked. So they also had company stores. So there's that song, 16 tons. You know, you load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. And they say, you owe all your money to the company store. Well, you're paying your rent to the company. You're buying stuff from the company stores. And it's just this, it's hard to even fathom for me. Like, I'm trying to. They're their own economy. They're their own, and we'll get into it if we talk about the Pullman labor strike. Uh, but it, it was just really interesting to see. That that's kind of the way a lot of this worked, is all the workers are living in these towns where everything is provided by the, the company, essentially. Schools, doctors, that's how, like, everything. military stuff is. So yeah, very yeah. similar. Mm-hmm. So that was just some context that I thought was kind of interesting well uh, i'll add too that we're hitting about the 1860s at this point and in 1866 august 20th of 1866 the very first national labor union is founded and it's called dun, 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 the national labor union very inventive uh-huh it was founded by samuel gompers remember him it, gompers Gompers. G-O-M-P-E-R-S. Gompers. I <laughs> I had to look at it like eight times and thought, how you know, we were talking about surnames once and like how people got their surnames. I'm like, how do you get this one? Look, it's Gompers. Like, it's probably those people that were doing the shoes. Gompers, over here. <laughs> well, it probably means it. something, you know, really awesome <laughs> in like another company country it's like a royalty (laughs) lineage and we're over here like gompers (laughs) it's true 
I have had several Romanians make fun of the names I pick for my children. So <laughs> it does depend on where you're from, what names mean. But Gompers also, you'll notice him in the future because he plays kind of a big role in labor unions. And he actually starts another one if you if you go down farther in the future um, called the American Federation of Labor. So you start getting, and I what I imagine and didn't really look up is that there are lots of smaller unions forming at this time, and now we've got a big one. There are. In fact, that uh, one you were talking about, that National Labor Union, actually formed out of some existing and unions. They came together. And they come together to actually form that more national sort of union. And their biggest thing, again, they want an eight-hour workday. Which is... They actually get that from the federal government. So in 1868, the they or the government passes something where they say any federal employees are going to have an eight-hour workday. Now they they pass that, but uh, with it essentially comes okay. Well, then you're getting paid less. You, you know, we're gonna you're instead of work, you were you were working ten hours, now you're working eight, so your pay is going to be adjusted, and in uh, 1869, Ulysses Grant passes a resolution saying, "You can't just reduce the pay as well. You got the, you know, the overall pay for a day should stay the same. The hours, you know, should change, and that gets passed kind of on the federal level. How well it gets followed, I don't know. But it's I don't. Only I don't think federal. I would have appreciated following that rule. If they're saying, hey, you know." You can't work your workers 10 hours, but you still have to pay them $6 a day. I'd be like, but they're not working those extra two hours. Like, that'd be hard for me. See, and I think that, that was kind of the argument, though, that, these, that they're making is, well, if you're just going to, you know, if you're not, if for us to have a living wage, you make us work 10 hours a day, then that's, you know, not okay. But you have this conflict where you've got these, you know, companies that are trying to run. And in a lot of cases, the companies are making tons of money. But there are times when they're not and they're losing money. And so then they go to reduce pay or reduce whatever. And that's where some of these major conflicts actually end up happening. But You know, it's kind of interesting because you think about back then. And I'm lumping this into a weird time mesh when you have, like, the Carnegie Steel and, like, the... The Rockefellers and the, yeah. the companies that are gigantic compared to the everyday man. I wonder if um, that's kind of what we were dealing with here. Oh, for sure. And it, it's people kind of talk about a similar sort of thing today where they're talking. There's some very rich, you know, sort of people. You got, you know, Bezos, Musk, Gates, you know, all the, you have uh there was a very similar thing back in the late 1800s, and in some cases it was way worse. Like, it's hard to actually know, but one of the things that I saw found that uh, Rockefeller, who I think mostly did oil, but I think a lot of these people got involved in multiple things. I do too. But he was, I think, mostly oil. If, if you were to look at him at his peak, he would have had, what the equivalent of 400 billion in today's dollars so some of these people were extremely (laughs) you know rich and so Mm. you know you got these workers who were working 10 hours a day in the mines Mm -hmm. doing all this stuff and 
they're not, you know, somebody else is getting rich and it just kind of infuriates them that when they say, oh, well, let me work eight hours. No, 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 no. You work 10 hours. I'll sit up here. So there's this big conflict. the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. You kind of have this uh, conflict going on between the, you know, the working class, the, the labor folks and the, you know, managerial capitalist class. I can't even imagine what I would do with four hundred billion dollars. Yeah, I have now no I'm idea. Imagining it. And what is interesting <laughs> is that a lot of these uh, people are they they put a lot of their money to to good use. So I went through and looked something they call you know are these robber barons or captains of industry sort of thing, and they talk about some of them. Some of the names: Leland Stanford, Cornelius Vanderbilt. James Buchanan Duke, and that these people put their money into building better communities and those guys' colleges. And I think it was the Carnegies who did, you know, libraries and arts. And so a lot of that money they're taking and putting into the community. But I think it's really hard for the workers to know or care. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it too, the benefit of the intensely wealthy. Um, there are some that aren't beneficial, but then you have your Bezos and your Musks that build spaceships. Yeah, <laughs> and, and even and, just and... the concept of industry. When you we got railroads yeah. that are now crossing the country that allow products to flow mm-hmm. and allow food to move easier, so less people have to do subsistence farming. Mm-hmm. And, and it may have even been done in the name of earning more dollars instead oh. of being kind, but it was still beneficial. But it's still beneficial. To de- development of America. And, and it raises realistically the standard of living for everyone. And, and it's just hard to see when you see somebody who's so far up above. Is yeah. that, yes, your, your life, prob- you know, the working class people's lives are getting better but not at the same rate as, you know, the the people who are making tons of money. So that kind of takes us into, you know, we're getting into like the 1870s. We got these national unions forming, and this is where it gets kind of crazy. This yeah. is where a lot of the problems it picks up start happening. really fast, and it then continues on for, oh. N- Nearly a hundred years of <laughs> crazy work union issues. Labor yeah, union issues. And, and stuff that, uh, this is where a lot of it is like, yeah, I'd heard of some of this stuff, but when I start mm-hmm. looking into it, it's not what I pictured. It's not, you know, what, what was kind of taught sort of thing. So one of the ones that I kind of wanted to get into, it, like one of the first instances that I saw was there was something, in fact, I'm going to start there. There was something called the Long Strike that happened in 1875, but a little bit before that, there was um, there's a group of strikers that called themselves the Molly Maguires, and I don't even know if they called themselves the Molly Maguires. <laughs> they were called the Molly Maguires. It doesn't feel like a name they would have given themselves. Well, let me give you the have. history of the name. <laughs> Okay, the history good. of the name, it comes from this, Ireland. This comes back to the history of names. That's important. Yeah. Good. Molly Maguire, <laughs> Irish name, and she oh. was fighting against the English coming in and essentially taking Irish land. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these Irish immigrants are working these jobs in the mines. They're working some of the hardest jobs. 
because there was high levels of discrimination. You can see, yeah. you go back and you can see signs, you know, help wanted, Irish need not apply. Right. They didn't the have a very and good so reputation. they were stuck in some of the worst jobs, which I think mining was probably one of the worst jobs I can think of. Like coal mining back. Your life expectancy went down significantly. And, and it seems so terrible. Like people talk about how bad strip mining is for the land. I think, who cares about the land? The non-strip mining, sending people down into mines oh. is terrible for people. <laughs> you can fix the land. So I don't really have a problem with strip mining compared to how they had to do this. I, I always like have so much, I don't know, sympathy for these people who had to do these mining jobs. Yeah, because it's all, almost all done by hand, yeah. especially at this time. It was all done and by And if hand. you see some of the pictures where they're sending people down into these mines, they got 20 people crowded on this small little elevator, and they go down. They don't come up for air for 10 hours. Yeah. They're down in these mines. They're covered in coal dust. coal dust and dirt and whatever else. And, oh, my gosh. And it's hard to even imagine the conditions in the mine because you know – there's not that much light. There's not that much air. There's not it cold. Yeah, it cold. just seems so hard. And you can't light a fire for warmth, or you'll die. Yeah, no kidding. Sorry, <laughs> I'm in a mood today. I think you got a <laughs> you got a canary for a pet for a little while, and then you, you got to keep checking up all on the him to see if he's oh, still there. Light the mountain on fire. So yeah, that's the, true. The canaries. Yeah, they had the canaries to see if the you know, if the canary falls over dead, you got to go, you know, everybody get out. You don't have enough air. So they had this group that they called the Molly Maguires, but there's no real documentation that there's a group of people that really called themselves. So the story is they had somebody from the Pinkerton Detective Agency, and I'm going to go off on them a little later, yeah, but I'm going to cool finish story. the Molly Maguire mm -hmm. uh, line. So they have somebody from this Pinkerton detective agency who's Irish, and he infiltrates the this group of miners. And they have this, he says, this secret group called the Molly Maguires that uses, you know, some union official name. But that he, they've been planning these, you know, violent riots and protests. And this guy infiltrates them, and he turns in, 60 of these people saying these guys are planning on doing you know violence whatever so they arrest these 60 people based on the word of this one before they did anything before they did anything Ooh. 20 of them were hanged <gasps> before they just on the wow. word of this one it's like that tom cruise video with those people that see the future yeah and uh, so and, and like i said there's no documentation Whoa. On these Molly Maguires. And there might not be, you know, this is a group that, you know, meets in taverns and does whatever. I'm sure they're not, you know, they don't have a secretary taking notes. But there's nothing that really confirms any of this that I could find, any documentation. But it was really, you know, interesting to see that sort of thing. And I think that goes... That level of activity kind of goes through this same period, all, you know, all the way up into the 1900s where you have. Oh, yeah. The Pinkertons are involved in things. They're still a company today. Yeah, they are still and a company. They're involved in labor issues up until the 1970s. 
So like, let's do a real quick recap of what the Pinkerton. Oh, let's do because their story is. Yeah, it was founded so by a guy named Alan Pinkerton, who was a um, Scottish immigrant. Yep, and he actually co-founded it with a lawyer. Yeah. At the time. And he was working out of Illinois. He was in Chicago. And this was in 1861. They were hired well, by. Well, they're kind of like a private yeah, police they're, force. They're a like private, a, the Pinkerton Detective yeah. Agency. Mm-hmm. They're kind of a private police force. They're hired to protect Abraham Lincoln on his way to the inauguration. They were not. They were hired by the they were hired by the railroad to that protect the railroad from people who were trying to assassinate Abraham Lincoln on his way to his inauguration. But because he's trying to stop any kind of issue with somebody tampering with the rail line or with somebody um, tampering with the cars, he so, takes it to protect the president. He's also. An abolitionist himself. He is. Mm-hmm. He worked on the Underground Railroad. Yes. Like that his he had a stop on the Underground Railroad in Chicago. But in I didn't even know that part. That's crazy. In uh, eighteen sixty one, when Lincoln's on his way to Washington DC, he's going by rail and the Pinkertons are working for the rail company. Well they get word of a plot, you know, they they have um, telegraph lines. And they, you know, there's nothing encrypted, there's nothing whatever. Mm -hmm. They're listening in. They say they hear of a conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln in Baltimore. So they end up, they cut the telegraph line so that nobody can communicate. They dress up. Let me quickly remind you that this is at a point where South Carolina has already seceded. They're already gone. They're in talks right now creating the confederacy it is not official yet but they are having meetings with southern states and maryland was a southern state it was a slave state and so they all hated lincoln very much and like we had said in the civil war thing the only way to get to washington dc is through it's essentially maryland or virginia oh La, 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 la. And so it <laughs> it ends up coming through uh, Baltimore, mm-hmm. where he's going to go. And one of the things, and, and I didn't even know this when I was looking into this previously, in that that Pratt you know street. But when you go through Baltimore, they have an ordinance that they're like coal yeah. engines aren't allowed through downtown, but the rail line goes. You, you have to go through that section mm-hmm. and it's drawn by like horse through that section yeah and so that's where they're saying this is going to happen so the train that lincoln is supposed to be on they put him on a different train and move him through it in at, the middle at like of midnight the night. you know they move him through in the middle of the night through that section and so everybody thinks he's on this different train and is waiting for this other train which apparently had his like wife you know, on it, yep. and she they take her off when she gets to Baltimore and send her somewhere. She goes safe. and stays at someone's house, yeah, with her kids because because it's, it's not so safe, you know, so and, and that's what they're saying. And uh, like, I kind of believe it, but I like you don't really know. Like, do you know no, what the plan was? The plan was to stab them. That I could tell is like they so had a bunch of people. They that, did. They had a bunch of people 
everybody has a knife. They're interdispersed throughout the crowd. And they're with and the people who are ever, supposed to be supporting Lincoln. You know, like, yes. hey, we're cheering you on and whatever. They're with this group that supposedly is going to be cheering Lincoln mm-hmm. on, meeting him at the, you know, station. But there's a bunch of people who are well, supposed would, to be there with knives ready to stab him. And whoever was closest was supposed to stab him. So it was like whoever had the opportunity took the opportunity. Because what I didn't know is when people would go and they become president, they would do a tour on the way to their inauguration. So he was doing his 70 city slash town tour on the way. And then Baltimore, of course, is right next to Washington, D.C. So this is like one of the last stops on the tour. And that's when they hear about this. But it was very common especially in Baltimore because it's right next to Washington, D.C., for people to, for the the president-elect to stop in. And and so these people were just planning on it, and yeah. they announce his route ahead of time. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Pinkerton had to change the route because they had announced it. Yep. Because there were lots of Because they hear that there's <laughs> this plot, people. and so they know, the, you know, if you show up and you, you get out of the train, which you're going to have to. You yep. can't take the train through the center of town. You're going to have to get out and get, you know, on a on a carriage or something. Yep. So they take him through in the middle of the night. And the next morning, of course, everybody's upset. But there was a telegram that Pinkerton sent once he was through. And it said, plums delivered nuts save me. Yep. <laughs> Plums was the Pinkerton's code name. Nuts was the president's code name. <laughs> but the other, and this is just another aside, is the there was no Secret Service at the time. The Secret Service started. I, I, Lincoln actually initiated the Secret Service. To it was formed. No. Nope. Oh, not himself. He. It was formed three months after he died. It was because there was so much counterfeiting going on. Oh, really? So the Secret but Service did 61. not assume... No, I thought it was 61. No, it was 65 when oh the gosh. Secret Service started. It started... Lincoln initiated it because there was so much counterfeiting going on, but it wasn't until was McKinley was assassinated in 1901, I think it was, that the Secret Service started taking, started care, taking of care of the president. president. It wasn't... Even though this happened right after Lincoln's assassination... You think, oh yeah, the Secret Service was created. Yeah, I did. I thought it was the personal like, service no, for the president. It was because it was of counterfeiting, and they didn't assume those responsibilities until another president was assassinated later. Whoa. And I just thought that was really interesting. Mm. Another thing about the Pinkertons is uh, they worked as spies for the North during the Civil War. One of oh. them got caught and was assassinated by the South, or hung, yeah. or whatever. You know, he got caught and was tried which tried might not be the right word, but... Uh, <laughs> tried without a yeah. jury. Um, one other fascinating fact is Kate Warren, who was the first female Pinkerton agent. She was an informant, and she also helped find information and get information about the assassination plot. So they had a, a lady private... Yeah, she would... Um, security lady. Put on a southern accent, say she was from, she was from New York. She'd say she was from Alabama... And she would get in with these, you know, groups uh, that uh, normal, you know, the the advertised thing was she'll be able to get information. You can't get a guy to get in. She'll be able to get in. There's also a book 
I mean, I'm sorry, a movie that was made in 1951 called The Tall Target, which is about this very day. Um, it also says that it's slightly inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> so back to labor unions. Back to labor unions. So in 1875, you got the Pinkertons. Uh, they infiltrate this group oh, of Irish wait, miners, wait. the Molly Maguires. You said the Civil War, and you were talking about the Civil War and how the Pinkertons were, were spies for the spies. North. Spies. They were also the largest private law enforcement organization in the world at in, that time. In 1884, they had more troops than the U.S. Army. Yeah, they, it was big. They were big. Mm -hmm. And what would happen is they'd get called in by these companies as, they called them like strike busters, but it's really, this is where I feel like getting the truth is actually harder than it should be. Yeah. Um, because there is kind of this kind of bias of, you know, we'll report on all the bad things that say the big you know companies do but they don't necessarily report on the bad things that the strikers are doing mm -hmm. you know and, mm -hmm. and what happens with these strikers is they go on strike say yeah we're not going to do this until our you know demands are met and the companies will go okay we'll just bring in other people Yes, the strike breakers. The, well, they, they bring in scabs. They call you know somebody to come in and replace That's the what union. The strikers called them. The strikers the, called them the scabs. Worker, I mean, the the companies yeah. called them strike breakers. <laughs> well, yeah, the <clears throat> these people would come in, and the people who were striking would attack them, mm -hmm. and even attack their families while they're at work, mm -hmm. and it became. You know, one of the things that the they said that these Pinkertons were hired to do was to actually protect the, you know, these the, scabs and uh, strike, strike breakers. breakers, as is more PC these days, and and protect <laughs> them from the strikers. Right. They so, were quoted to say that they would infiltrate unions, guard businesses, keep rabble rousers I out of the factories. Um, protect strike breakers, and I quote, recruit, recruit. I don't quote that. <laughs> That's how they talked back then. I'm just saying. If you weren't from England, you <laughs> pronounce recruit that this way. Is time of immigration. <laughs> we got a lot of foreigners. Recruit, quote. You are on one Goon today. squads. I am having a day today to intimidate workers. So they would have, they would recruit these people and they called them goon squads yep. to to intimidate the striking individuals. I thought that was so funny. Oh, it is. It is funny. It is funny that they would call them goon squads. Cause I know, because usually you'd be like, goon It's kind of like the, the scab sort of thing. is <laughs> Like the shoe people. Yeah, the strikers call people scabs, <laughs> but you wouldn't expect, you know, the, the people who are hiring the goon That's squads right. to call them goon squads. You'd expect the people who are on the receiving ends of the goon squads to call them the goon yes. squads. Yes. And there were lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of strikes at this time. You and had I want to talk about you one in long... particular. Oh, go ahead. In 1877, there was a great railroad strike. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in 1877, it started in... West Virginia on the B&O, Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. You From played your Monopoly. Monopoly. It started on that, but it spread across the country. So in Baltimore, it ended up on in Pratt Street, uh, that oh, yeah. famous Pratt Street. 
Uh, there was a riot. Ten people were killed. Twenty-five were wounded on Pratt Street. But when it spread to Pittsburgh, on July 19th, the Pittsburgh train crews refused to take their trains out. They just, yeah, we're not, we're not working. We're not taking the trains out. So they go on strike. The company calls in replacements, and the replacements refuse to take the trains out. So they call in a third group. And that's where the strikers start attacking this third group of, you know, people who are coming in to move the trains out. They get attacked by the striking workers. And the striking workers essentially, you know, run off this third group or intimidate them. And, you know, no trains are going out. So the governor calls in the National Guard on July 21st. The head of the National Guard goes up in front of the strikers and he makes a speech and he says... You that know me know that I will obey orders. I have troops who will obey my orders. And I tell you, gentlemen, these trains must go through. My troops will have no blank ammunition. And I give you warning of this in time. And 600 National Guards show up on July 1st. They've got Mm -mm. two Gatling guns with, or July 21st. They got two Gatling guns, 20 rounds of ammo What's a per... a Gatling gun? A Gatling gun was... Gatling? Gatling. Gatling. It's, oh. it's kind of like a machine gun sort of thing. It's got the uh, like barrels that rotate. Like for, like like for, for war. war. Mm. And, and it can shoot out, I don't know how many rounds per second. It, it's bigger Whoa. than a machine gun. It's, it's a very serious... You know, weapon, probably You're like... you down the front lines with that. The most serious at the time this seems so north korea it is <laughs> like china it, like and this it, yeah so, exactly mm. like it, it's one of those things that you kind of forget that this stuff yeah. happened mm-hmm. so they're ordered there's only 600 of them at the time they're ordered to go in and arrest the leaders of this protest which has 2,000 people in one group 10,000 sitting Whoa. like right next to them so they go in to arrest you know the the leaders well, they get rocks thrown at them. Uh-oh. Now, if That's you've paid any it... attention <laughs> to previous... Was it Boston Massacre? Is that where you're going in the, this? Boston Massacre, you know, Pratt Street. It doesn't matter. You Wherever you have these rocks. groups throwing rocks at armed and people... At people with guns, it... you end up pissing them off. And that's what and happens. their weapons are better than yours. And they are throwing rocks, and they try and grab guns away from them, and so they start shooting, and they start bayoneting people. <gasps> they kill 20 people. Whoa. They wound 29 more. Out of 10,000. But 000. they don't quell anything, and they get forced well, now back. now you pissed off the other side. Like, everyone's yeah. so just now they're, like, they're just going to, they're killing angry us. Angry hornets. And so the National Guard is forced back into this they call it a, like a, like a roundhouse. It's like a train depot. Oh, where they turn the cars. Where the they turn the car. Around. They fall back into this roundhouse depot, and they're hiding in there. The rioters take these trains filled with barrels of oil, oh, light the no. barrels of oil on fire, <gasps> push it into the the they, roundhouse. What? And the National Guard is sitting there. We're either gonna die, you know, a fire, or we gotta leave. So they start leaving uh, and they're firing they're being fired upon so while they get pushed back into the train station all these strikers go and start raiding armories oh my and getting word. guns 
does this sound so childish for such gigantic, serious consequences? It it kind of does, and uh, it's hard to even imagine. I, I bet I would be a rioter, though. I'm so It's hard emotional. to, <laughs> and what's interesting in Pittsburgh is that the police <sighs> take the side of the rioters, so the, they're the these National Guards are looking for help from the police. Well, when they're fleeing the uh, roundhouse, they're getting fired on from the police station. And they go, and, and it was so... I don't know. This sort of rings a little BLM when they just let them do it. It. I kind of thought mm-hmm. there were a lot of similarities between the, you know, the BLM riots and these sort of riots. But when you're killing people, like, it's... Ugh. And, and it you gets, can't come back from that. You, you can't come back from that because, you know, once once people start dying, like like the, the word from the striker side is they're just killing us. You know, they're just, we, we need to kill them because they're killing us. So over the course of this riot in, you know, Pittsburgh, uh, 59 oh. rioters are killed with 109 injured. They end up arresting like 139. So are these from like a steel company and that's why you get the Pittsburgh Steelers? Well, there this was like... a rail company, but Pittsburgh oh, has a huge mm-hmm. industry and, and that is where you get the Steelers. That's right. There's the another, radar. there's a steel one later on in the program if you... Good grief. Um, this is what you see in movies and you don't believe that they haven't totally like dramatized it. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, actually, we didn't show. Just but they how burned down like two square miles of the city. <gasps> they burned down thirteen hundred railroad uh, railroad cars. Whoa! Filled with freight. Three thousand federal troops and one thousand state troops have to come in to put an end to this. And that was just in Pittsburgh. This. Riots happened in Maryland, New York, Philadelphia, Missouri, Chicago. They're all happening right around the same time. They're, none of them are b- as bad as Pittsburgh, but over you know through all those uh, cities, you know, hundred people killed, thousands of people go to jail. Who knows how much in damages? And it finally kind of gets you know put down by federal troops. And the next year they pass. I'm not even going to pronounce this right, so I will do my best. The Posse Comitatus Act, which says you cannot deploy federal troops against, you know, civilians. What? That seems like... Unless you feel like it. I would like really what it says. If if they're burning everybody down in two miles of the city, you should be able to have the oh, U.S. They do. troops in. It, like, it, it's kind of a garbage like, thing because it really is along the lines of, you know, unless I'll you feel like you need sides. to. I, I feel like you burn down two miles of a city, you get to deal with some Well, they are, that was in 1878, they passed that. The, the, there are several more of these riots and federal troops are called out on a lot of them. Oh, good. Because... Really, it and it is interesting because there also is you you end up seeing state and federal conflicts where there's riots going on. Federal troops are called in, and the state's like, "Hey, you know, this is our. You shouldn't be sending federal troops in." And but you suck at it. You're not taking that, that's kind of what they're saying. And, and you'll see in some cases there's potentially an excuse of well, U.S. mail. That's a federal thing. It ain't flowing across the railroads because of your problems, so we're coming in to fix it. Um, oh, and that ends up happening. 
they do have a when you go back and and you look at all these labor issues and actually I have a lot of stuff on the mafia so when it goes into mafia things a lot of the issues that they bring up and charge these guys with have to do with interstate commerce yep. so and that becomes a federal issue and the it's cuz of the the railroads kind of have that you, at effect. the time, you didn't get a more interstate commerce than the railroads. The railroads mm-hmm. were the interstate commerce for the most part. And you can have some ships, that's where but... a lot of these problems are and, and mm-hmm. where a lot of the power is. Like if you're a striker and you want to make a difference, you shut down the railroads, somebody's going to listen to you. Yes. And so the, it, that's what ends up happening in a lot of these cases is this really turns into these people who are striking will do some pretty crazy things mm-hmm. to, to get what you know, to get what they want. And some of that isn't portrayed that much in, you go look into some of these things, like one, there's the Haymarket riot in 1886 in Chicago. Uh, it, it's another one of those, they're fighting for the eight-hour workday. They've got these national unions that are pushing this out. They're trying to get everybody, a bunch of cities have a, a number of workers participating in this strike on May 1st, you know, 1986, it's going across several days, and on May 3rd in Chicago at a place called, you know, Haymarket, well, first, there's this McCormick Reaper plant that makes uh, farming equipment called the Reaper, Yep. and at that, the strikers march on towards the property, and because the, what they do is they go in and they either take control or they burn it down or, you know, mm-hmm. well, they hire people like the Pinkertons to come in and defend it. So somebody is defending this reaper plant. They march on it and they shoot somebody who's marching on it. Cause I, I think they end up kind of like busting down a fence. And so they're like, all right, open. Well, open. look at the history of all this stuff that's gone. On. <laughs> yeah. So and these are big crowds. These are big crowds. Mm-hmm. They they had thirty to forty thousand people show up in Chicago. Can you imagine standing there trying to defend your business against thou ten thousand yeah. people? Like it'd be terrifying. It would be terrifying, and I don't even know what the companies did, but it's hard not to. Well, they hired people like the Pinkertons, and in some cases, in one in Colorado, they set up machine gun nests and they build fences <gasps> and they like. I, it's it's a serious business. Wow. But at this one, you know, they and, killed and somebody and all of a sudden things got you know pretty crazy. The, these groups there was a paper called the Anarchist and another one called the Alarm. These are run by German immigrants and they Whoa. start putting out some pretty heavy rhetoric saying, you know, time to take up arms, you know, everybody Those Germans. The only way you're going to solve this is with dynamite <laughs> and 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 that's really what wow. they're saying. They they put out these articles. You know, a pound of dynamite is better than a bushel of ballots. You know, this, you you got to join up and take up arms. And if you don't, and and they have this really heavy rhetoric that's going on. And they show up uh, at this, you know, Haymarket Square. They're there pretty much all day, you know, talking, doing whatever crowd dwindles down there's only about 300 of them left at about 10 30 at night the police show up and say time to disperse you got to go home somebody yells out but we're being peaceful and a second later a bomb goes off 
Somebody chucked a bomb at the police, killed the policeman. <laughs> I'm not laughing at that portion. I'm laughing at the, Mostly but peaceful, we're being peaceful. But we're peaceful. So then Boom. the bomb goes off, Whoa. kills a, a policeman. You have, oh. The next day, you know, everybody kind of disperses, and then the police start going after uh, people. So yeah. they go after the people who are holding the this um, protest. They go after their newspapers. They go after a bunch of people. They find a particular person who has several bombs that are made out of the same composition. So apparently what they do is they take, they made these metal casings out of kind of a fragile metal that will shatter. And then they put dynamite in it. So you have this shrapnel that Can goes out. Can you imagine carrying that around with you? Like, just yeah. it's in your jacket. You're, like, in a group of 300 people bonking around. Uh, yep. <laughs> one of them hits the other. Kablaw! <laughs> like, no. Dynamite's uh, stable. Dynamite is more stable than nitroglycerin, nitroglycerin which it is made of. Yeah. But it has nitroglycerin in it. But, ooh. But, yeah. Uh, but, anyway, they end up, they arrest eight people sentence seven of them are sentenced to death Whoa. and and it kind of turned you know like we're not going to put up with this sort of thing and and it's interesting because none of them they can't find the guy who threw it they don't know who threw it but these guys are charged as essentially instigating and participating in it yeah and some of it really was for the things that they said and they like i this one i kind of got lost in and i went and read a bunch of the like court documents and stuff like that. And what, I mean, they really are printing things, calling, you know, pick up your guns and, you know, march. So in inciting. Yeah. So, but they're, they're charged with manslaughter is what they're, they're sure because I can, they, I can see how the pieces connect in that yeah. way. And, and I don't know all of the details, but I understand somebody got there. And a lot of people look at it as like a heavy-handed approach sort of thing. Like, oh, you're taking these, you know, newspaper people, and but uh, basically they're just saying, yeah, we can't just sit and let you, you know, chuck bombs. And but it, that one was a really interesting one because it is they have in that Haymarket, you know, square there are monuments to these strikers, you know, that like. They're looked on as heroes for some people. And and there's a bunch more of these sort of, you know, strikes. There's another big one. The, this one is the steel one outside Pittsburgh. There's a Homestead strike. So Yeah, and this I, is the one where the Pinkertons yeah, were the, actually guarding the people coming to work. Yeah, so they, and they get called in. The Pinkertons, it, it, there's a river there. The Pinkertons come in on... The, these kind of armored barges and because the do they make this themselves i imagine there's not like a market for armed barges i i'm assuming that they make some of it themselves but i have no idea but they they have built a 12 foot fence around the plant you know with topped with barbed wire they do you know but the strikers are watching They've got people at the railroad stations. They've got people at other cities, and they're watching any scabs that come in. They catch them before they can make it to the factory. 
So they got to come in by river. So the Pinkertons come in to secure the river. They get fired, you know, on. They get uh, they they end up having this battle kind of back and forth. Uh, that, that lasts for like 13 hours wow. before the Pinkertons kind of surrender because they're just stuck on these barges. And so they end up surrendering. They get out and they get, they just, the crowd just beats them. <gasps> and so, you know, that one took 8,000 federal troops to come in and You know, it's times like this where I... I it makes it very hard to side with the riotous people. I, I it is hard, and uh, the interesting thing though is mm. like I, I think that some of the things they did, like I feel bad for like you know some of these work they're working some right, of the hardest right. jobs. I always say to my kids, you know what? I know your sister bit you, but you punched her in the face and broke her nose, so you did the worst yep. thing now, and now she's not even in trouble. Because you did the worst thing, and that actual scenario hasn't happened, but you understand my point. So that's what I feel like here is the the businesses are the bad guys until you become the bad guys, and then you're the bad guys. And and part of the things that I have a problem with is because I'm I'm a very, you know, free market sort of person. Is if you want to go work for a company, that's fine. If you don't want to work for the company, that's fine. Mm-hmm. So if you go, if you want to strike, that's fine. But when they say, okay, well, we can get somebody else to come in and you, you attack away. that person. You walk away because you made your choice. Yeah. Th- like mm-hmm. then you cross, you're the one crossing the line, not the company. Yes. And I have a hard problem with that. But I I also am of the opinion, you know, I, I want to see people get paid, you know, for their hard work. You know, mm-hmm. I think they're doing harder work than most of us know. Like I don't, you know, those mining people, I yeah. don't think I could even comprehend how hard their jobs are. But, yeah, you get into, and after each one of these strikes, the union power starts, you know, people get more interested yes. in unions after and each one of these. And at this point, they're, they've got um, no rights as the unions. They're making it all up themselves. So yeah, this when is it a comes new concept. Federal, federal regulation of union, nothing has happened and doesn't happen until 1935. And I know this is fast forwarding and we'll go back but in 1935 you get the Wagner Act or the National Labor Relations Act and that's when they guarantee the rights of the private sector to organize union and collective bargain and strike so up until this point and this is this is Franklin Delano Roosevelt like you are post depression or you are in the middle you're in the the middle of it but um so up until this point these people are just winging it there's no rules. There's no explanation of what you know. Yeah, and there the are country thinks of as a labor union. There are places where it's it. effective, and there are places where the companies just we refuse to talk to the yes. union. We won't talk to union reps. Yep, and because that's what your collective bargaining is. Is in a collective bargaining, you have people as a group. N- nominate or elect or or pick somebody to talk to the business on their behalf yeah and it's interesting to go through and see some of that evolution because one of the things that had happened in the um, when teddy roosevelt was president is he actually got together and said all right the government the unions and the management we're all getting together to solve this 
and he actually did a pretty good job because, you know, in I, I got to go find my notes to see which one that you know was, but it I think it was the coal mining strike in 1902. It was a, a very serious strike, and it's getting on towards winter. And one I saw this article, Penn State University was saying, if you were to look at what happened because of this coal, you know, strike. It would be the equivalent. The coal prices went up so high. It would be the equivalent of like a thirteen dollar a gallon gas, and wow. and the coal was how most people heated their houses. Mm-hmm. And winter starts coming, so he calls. All right, everybody, get in here, and we're gonna solve this. So he ends up kind of recruiting like J.P. Morgan to get some of the business owners involved to say, "Look, you got to come to the table." or else worse things are going to happen is really what the argument is is if you don't come you're going to get you know all you're going to get voted out of office you know the the people that are in there that are have these pro business points they will be gone they will be replaced by people who will come in and tear your companies to shreds wow. so you either show up or pay for it later and so they showed up and they had what almost it, it was basically like a trial they brought in this lawyer clarence darrow who's a famous he's involved in a lot of labor uh court cases they brought him in to represent the labor side they brought in a bunch of people they interview witnesses they spend seven months and at the end of the you know whoever's handling the judge position says all right 10 percent pay increase nine hour work days instead of 10 hour work days the matter is solved Wow. And and it was really interesting to see it work like that because people are saying you don't even have the power as the president to do this sort of thing and he's like I don't I don't care. Watch me not have the power. <laughs> yep. Watch me have the power. <laughs> uh yeah, I just thought that one was interesting. Uh and and that was another one too in that coal strike in 1902 when a bunch of people, you know, went on strike. 10,000 people just were like we're going back to Europe. This stinks. We're leaving. So all these people wow. who are working in the mines who went on strike, thirty thousand went west and ten thousand went east to Europe. Which would you do? Uh, if I was from Europe, I might have gone back to Europe. Yeah. But the in apparently the midwestern uh, workers had gone on strike and got some benefits. You know, they were getting higher pay. So that's why a lot of these people went west. Well, I do believe that the Homestead Act was still in it. So it started in 1862, and you could get a chunk of land out west for nothing. Yeah, 160 acres to anyone who would farm the land. I was so say 40 acres in a mule. <laughs> that's a that's a lot. You could that's a lot. So people could leave this terrible job of digging in the mountain, and then they could go out west. I probably would have picked the free land out west. And one of the hard things with that, though, is that this is untamed land. Yeah, but if... But... Yeah. It's not mines like... are untamed <laughs> land. You, you choose. It's not like you're really living in, like, modern-day times. You're True. going from two steps up to two steps down. And, yeah, you have an outhouse instead of 
an outhouse. Yeah, but... <laughs> I think the hard thing is water. Is is where do you get your That's water true. from? That's true. You do and have so to. It really to do limited the amount of places that people could water. go. But that's true. That I still would have. I still would have. It would still be would've. so fun. I could. Uh, I think. I'd probably pick that over the mines. Yeah. So yeah, there were a few others that I kind of wanted to, and I'm just going to kind of skim through some of them. Uh, but the, you know, the, that Pullman strike. One of the things that I wanted that one was in 1894, and there was this Pullman town, and it was really like one of the best places to live. Like it was so nice. It won an international award for being nice. Like this uh, in in Prague, basically was like this is the most you know the cleanest, most well kept town we've ever seen. Mm-hmm, wow. And and the problem, what it ended up happening is there's a, a, a kind of a recession. The train it company was goes, a depression until they changed until they changed the, the rules in 2020 <laughs> of what a depression is, or maybe it was 2021. Yeah, so there was a depression in 1893, so they had 5,500 people working. They cut that to 3,300 people, and they reduced wages by 25%. Mm-hmm. And this is a company town. They own the buildings, the t- stores, everything. They don't cut the rent. They don't cut anything else. They just cut wages. So, it And, and it was a nice town and a nice place to work, so it, it is actually like, I think, 25% more expensive to live in Pullman Town than nearby Chicago. Oh. So they get their wages cut. They're still paying a ton. So they decide to go on strike, and they get help from the unions, the uh, American like Railroad Union, that says, like, if there's a Pullman car on the, the train, don't don't pull the Pullman cars. Like, just you won't. And the railroad companies are saying, look, we got contracts saying we have to do this. We're going to do this. So the railroads decide not to back down. The union decides not to back down. Well, long story short, rocks and what have you, fourteen <laughs> thousand federal troops called in, and that they was where they they use the mail. Is that they attach the mail trains to the same trains that had the Pullman cars, and said, well, mm. "Mail's got to get there." And that was actually a quote from uh, like Grover uh, Cleveland who was the president at the time, and he says, if it takes the entire Army and Navy of the United States to deliver a postcard in Chicago, that card will be delivered. Wow. And the governor of Illinois was not happy. Like He, he was, you know, let us handle this. I don't think they've this. ever had a happy governor. They, I don't think they have. <laughs> they don't seem like a very happy people over there. No. So, <sighs> yeah, that one, there were 7,000 railroad cars burnt. It it turned 7, into this thousand. big, big thing where eventually, and the governor initially who hadn't called out you know any troops, he ends up having to call out the troops. The mayor of Chicago calls up the governor saying, "Look, you gotta send somebody." So he ends up sending his own national guard, but the federal troops were already you know coming, and so yeah, it was. I just can't imagine caring that much about something. Like, I understand, like you said before, if you feel cheated, that's awful. I can't imagine caring so much that I'm willing to burn down 7,000 railroad cars. Like, that's I, more than there were people. 
That's that's a <laughs> lot. And but I want to give this quote: the, the Eugene Debs was the head of the union that was organizing all this, and he's kind of a famous historical labor leader. But he, after the destruction where they burned the seven thousand railroad cars, this is what he said: "Is he said." Whatever may be said, the fact is that all strikes and all resistance to strikes take on the psychology of warfare, and all parties in interest must be judged from that standpoint. And as I stood on the prairie watching the burning cars, I had no feeling of enmity towards either side. I was only sad to realize how little pressure man could stand before he reverted to the primitive. Oh, interesting. And I think there's so much truth in that. Very true. Is that well-meaning people are trying to stand up for themselves and 20 minutes later there's blood in the streets because uh, it it doesn't take a lot yeah that's, i that's i really got into this these sort of conflicts more than i got into like labor unions in general as i got mired down in these conflicts well i think it's a nice place to go when you're studying the history i went down the mafia route so i went to places (laughs) that that are really loosely tied compared to the actual events that happen yeah i think the there is and and i haven't got too much into it and i don't know how much is you know hearsay versus anything else the ties between like mafia and organized labor absolutely interconnected yeah and i think at this time in the 18 late 1800s i don't know that it's that connected no it started it it started in the late 1800s and the early 1900s and and i i will explain how it happened if you're ready to move into this let's let's move into that and then we'll wrap it up okay so so actually it's after the 1900s that the mafia really isn't is playing a role in america because I had heard this, but I found this a, an interesting fact, where the mafia began in Sicily because they found out lemons could cure scurvy. So all of these lemon farmers in Sicily suddenly had to protect their lemon groves and <laughs> their crops. And so they started having and paying families to protect their crops and this became a gigantic thing because they took it and they rolled with it and they took it way too far <laughs> it all started from lemons um the, the most interesting you when you as soon as you say that my first thought is it's kind of like the pinkertons the, the, yep. they're hiring the pinkertons only they're on the opposite side of the Pinkertons. Yeah. Like, yeah, you've got these conflicting, we'll hire this group for protection. And the mafia is like, well, you can hire us for protection in a different way. Well, I don't think it was intended. I think it was intended to be like the Pinkertons. I just think the Pinkertons maybe had a little bit more of a moral compass than the mafia. Because it's possible. It be- they would harshly punish anybody that didn't agree with them. The Pinkertons might might shoot somebody but these guys would harm their fam like it it became anyway let's let me go into this so as they immigrate to america they still have these strong family ties and then they and as time progresses and you hit the 30s there is strong mafia presence in the united states 
yeah, you have things like the prohibition and stuff that mm-hmm. ended up happening where that just increased this crime presence mm-hmm. of, you know, organized crime. So I started down this road because um, I wanted to know what kind of influence, because I was reading an article and they said, well, there was a, a mob influence and it was on either side. Like it wasn't like the mafia was super pro-union or pro-business. It was whoever they're was pro getting, mafia. They're pro-mafia. So whatever side they wanted to be on, they would be on. And legit people disappeared. Legit families were taken out. <laughs> legit businesses were transferred into the, the families' names. Like it was the same kind of zoo that you see on movies and don't believe is real. But I kind of went down, so um, I wanted to bring up first, even though I'm going to be kind of skipping around in the timeline, you have this war that starts in the, in the 40s, World War II. And there is, this was the first place I went and I just stayed here <laughs> for a long time. There was something called Operation Underworld of 1942. And what it is, is it's when the United States government starts cooperating with the Irish mob, the Italian mafia, and the Jewish organized crime syndicate. I didn't even know they had one. But they do this because after the attack on Pearl Harbor, there was a ship called the SS Normandy that was, that was sailing, and naval intelligence believed that it was sabotaged by... Mussolini supporters because he's Italian and they have Italian dock workers, tons of Italian dock workers and Irish dock workers and apparently maybe Jewish dock workers. Maybe that was a different <laughs> thing. But I know the other two were big dock workers and um, they were worried that the they would have Italian sympathizers at, that would have access to ships and labor unions. So they and would cause strikes just to cause problems so they would you know amp up the people cause strikes or they would sabotage ports or you know cause problems and my notes here are like because it says here they wanted to keep saboteurs out of ports avoid labor strikes and limit black market thefts of war supplies and i'm like who was stealing on the black market if it wasn't the mafia (laughs) (laughs) but So here's the rabbit hole I went down. They had to, again, keep the sympathizers out of the unions because, and there were no dock strikes throughout the entire war. So what happened is the government approaches the guy. He's a non-Italian member of one of the five families. And he said, they say, hey, can you reach out to Charles Luciano? And Charles Luciano is one of the highest ranking mafia members in U.S. and Italy. And he is in prison for 30 to 50 years for compulsory prostitution, which means he's forcing women into prostitution. So it's 1936 um, when he's put in prison. So Luciano is like, if you give me a lower sentence, I will, I will do this. So that was, that was some good Italian. <laughs> I, 
better than my shoemakers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So (laughs) he contacts this guy named Albert the Mad Hatter Anastasia, also known as the Earthquake, the One Man Army, or the Lord High Executioner, if that gives you any idea of what Anastasia is like. So he's an illegal immigrant who entered the U.S. as a dock worker. He's supposed to stay on a ship, and he just left the ship and (laughs) stayed. And he is in charge of the docks, as in, like, his influence is so big that he is influencing the unions, and he is influencing anything that is in these docks, right? So he's he also founded this company called Murder Incorporated. (laughs) I don't know how... Like, I don't know how this was named, but it was legitimately because he would hire people to kill people. I know. So I'm not sure that that's the like the murder LLC. You know, I don't know that he got that. He might have just monogrammed it on his own jacket. (laughs) Go ahead. Tell me that I don't get to use that name. Go ahead. Right. So it was the enforcement arm of the National Crime Syndicate from 1929 to 1941. And the reason it stops in 41 is because he joins the military at this. I'll get to that in just a second. But he was in charge of almost every dock worker union. He was like the guy that if the dock workers needed something, he was the guy. And it was he killed a lot of people or ordered a lot of people to be killed. So in 1939, Anastasia allegedly ordered the murder of Teamsters Union official, whose name was Morris Diamond, and it was over a dispute in the Garment District in Manhattan. So in 1939, he also allegedly organized the murder of Peter Panto, who was the International Longshoreman's association activists so he's starting to kill off anybody that kind of disagrees with what he wants <laughs> i have a man to do it i sound like i should be selling pasta <laughs> some, some children's pasta but <laughs> so the list is going on he murder incorporated is responsible for between 400 and 1000 contract killings between the years of 29 and 41. Wow. So he is like popping people Business off. is booming. And how do you have like a reasonable labor union when you know it is being so coerced in this fashion? I don't know. So I keep going down this hole. And the group was exposed by a man named Abe Kid Twist Reyes, Reyes who died when he suspiciously just fell out a window (laughs) (laughs) who was also attributed to Anastasia. So Anastasia helps in world war two in order to help get a pardon for Luciano and the mafia protect the waterfront protected anyone who was trying to conflict with the dock businesses so that they wouldn't have any issue with supplies or getting their, um, their supplies to the, the troops that needed it. And in 1942, he joins the U.S. Army and got the rank of a technical sergeant. And guess what his job was? 
His job was to train soldiers to be longshoremen in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I was like, right. uh, <laughs> did you guys check his references? <laughs> like, how is he in charge of this? Why don't you put him uh, in the position where you kill people? You know, that's yeah. something you need in war. Give him a his gun and put him in the front. <laughs> so in 1943, he's grant- granted U.S. citizenship in exchange for his military service. So now he's not illegal. He's official. And it, the rabbit hole gets bigger because when people are indicted for murder, until the, like, the main witness starts disappearing, like, all these time, all these people who have been killing people, all of the witnesses start dying, just like in the movies. Just like the movies. <laughs> in 1948, he bought a dressmaking factory in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and in 1951, he was called to the Senate to answer questions on organized crime, but he wouldn't answer any. So he was working as an underling for Vincent Man. Gajano family? I don't know. And Mangiano was mad that Anastasia had done that thing for Luciano. Now, Luciano, at this time, when the war finishes, they say, thank you so much, Luciano. You now can go back to the country you originally came from. And so he gets, he just gets sent back, so he's not in prison anymore. And he actually was happy about this. This was a, a good choice for him. But he's still a crime crime boss. Like, he's just in Sicily now or wherever. So, Maggiano and Anastasia are fighting all the time because Mangiano's mad that he helped Luciano. And then one day, it was the weirdest thing. Mangiano, gone. And it was so unusual, too, because his brother, his body was in Jamaica Bay, New York, at the very same day that <laughs> Mangiano goes missing. It was just the most unique set of circumstances. And then in 1959, while he's sitting in a barber shop, somebody came somebody in and shot him. For no reason at all. And he got up while they were shooting him <laughs> and attacked them. But because he'd had a hot towel on his face, he didn't, couldn't really see them. And he attacked their reflections in the mirror. And then so he died <laughs> at 55 with a towel on his head. And punching it was windows. punching glass mirrors. But when you dive in to any of these areas, I mean, of course, there's massive amounts of situations that, that get to one pinnacle point. But the, the influence that the mafia had on labor unions, uh, to me, almost made it seem like the unions were irrelevant like they were useless at that point you're just doing what the mafia wants at this point yeah and what i suspect is that it's one of those uh the mafia will help you get what you want and you'll help the mafia get what they want and so you're kind of an arm but at the same time you're gonna get a benefit out of it they're gonna they're gonna help you negotiate yes they'll help you negotiate (laughs) Whatever gets them in a better yeah. position. Or, you know, conversely, they'll find the business then uh, that will negotiate with them, and they'll help the business negotiate. Yeah. But after World War II, there becomes this gigantic strike wave that happens across the country. That it is post-war, everyone's mad. This is another one of those times where it would have probably been considered like a depression, but not anymore, where... 
everyone had been, it wasn't actually a depression. What it was is massive inflation because you have everybody's back. Everybody's filling back in from the jobs, from being out at war. So the people who were working now have to shift a little bit and that's really hard for them. But also inflation over the three years after the war ended was 8%, 14%, and 9%. Wow. Kind of what it's been lately. Yep. So, and it's one of those things that you can kind of, you know, what you get. All right, now I know what that mm-hmm. kind of means is you had a, a decent job, you're working hard, you're doing well, and then it doesn't mean, you know, you don't have the same purchasing power. You don't have the same thing that you had previously because mm-hmm. of inflation. So, yeah, then uh, so, people want more. and But because they had gone quite crazy and because we're not in the 1870s anymore, the government released the Taft-Hartley Act. And in 1947, it amended the National Labor Relations Act and limited a lot of the powers of the labor union. So President Truman vetoed this. And Congress said... They over tough, yeah. yeah they we overturned got the sixty-six percent or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and and it says here in section one of the National Labor National Labor Relations Act that it is to promote the free flow of commerce to prescribe legitimate rights of both employees and employers. And I think up until this point, they hadn't really considered the employers and how. In, in any of the legislation. It was mostly yeah, just I, to protect the employees. I think for the most part, they kind of felt like they didn't need to. The employers were yeah. taking care of themselves. But then when, you you know, the, the unions get more power, then yeah. you say, all right, well. And mafia influence. Yeah, it, you don't want, you know, nobody's going to make a company mm-hmm. if they're, they're not going to get something out of it. Yeah, so. or if you're, you're, even if you're, you're the hands of a mafia. Like, yeah. how do you run a business when you're running it for this other guy but they took out they prohibited certain acts like jurisdictional strikes wildcat strikes solidarity or political strikes secondary boycotts um picketing and closed shops but you could still allow union shops so um a closed shop means that it would be a company that says we're only going to hire union workers. They couldn't do that yeah. anymore. They had to be able to allow people who weren't part of the union in, but they still allowed union shops, which were when if you had a union, everybody who worked there paid for it, even if you weren't part of it. That one is such a, <laughs> like there's stuff that doesn't make sense to me. I know. And that is one of those things that I could never comprehend is how does that not just feel like extortion? Yeah. And your your right to work laws were also banned people from having to be part of a union. But I looked up some of today's information on unions, and not, not terribly much, but it says that there are 14.3 million workers in America that belong to labor unions, and 3.2 million of them are teachers. So 70% wow. of all teachers are unionized under the teachers union oh my gosh I, uta or say that, whatever i just noticed the teachers NTA. nta but... <laughs> no, 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 no. dang it <laughs> yeah and there's others and it's one of those things like my opinion on unions was always 
I I think the people have a right to strike. I think the people have yes. a right to you know not you know you, you can't make me you know work here if I don't want it. But if the company goes and gets other people, then that's yeah fine. But one of the issues that I end up having with things like unions is the like you were saying the forced dues. Like yeah, yeah. you have to pay us regardless. Just the fact that you work here means you got to pay into you know union dues. That just seems like extortion to me, especially I when you start talking confused. about like mafia ties. I am where... a little confused though about like what any of this means, and I didn't spend a lot of time on it. So take what I say. Well, a I, I've heard that, that but in that other places too. Is that there are sure places if you get a job, the only way to do it is you become part of the union and you pay your mm. union dues. Well, and a lot of companies, even though it's not like specifically, they're not going to hire you. They still will most likely use people who are in a union. I know acting is, is a big one. Like if you are yeah. not part of an actor's union. But a lot guild, of that is, is simply because the unions had so much power. It wasn't yeah. the choice of the companies as much as it was a concession. So the companies make a concession to the union saying, okay, we will only hire union yeah. people to make you happy. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of, that stuff does kind of bother me is... I, I think anybody should be able to apply for, you know, any position and have the same chances as anybody else. And so to have it be, well, no, you have to, these guys control it and you got to go through them has a little bit of that mafia sort of, you know, feel to it, I guess. <laughs> they were influential. <laughs> but yeah, the, the other thing that bothers me about certain unions and the only ones that I really know that do this are like the teachers union and the police unions mm-hmm. is that they, they response is essentially we're going to protect anybody in our union like no matter what yeah and and part of me thinks that's the wrong approach is that you should have this relationship with the companies where you're saying here's the deal we will give you the best workers you'll pay us good wages and instead it becomes no you know if if it's not a good work you can't fire can't that fire is, them without coming I through us and then hard time people have these people who don't work well or who and they can't fire them because the unions have so much power and i really think it's a mistake on the union side you don't want to offer a lower product yeah like if you basically said all right here we will give you the best and you pay us a good you know you'll pay us good wages and we'll give you good workers yeah i i think that's a good arrangement for both sides but if it's you pay us the best and we'll give you you know some of them will be good workers oh but if it's gosh. not you can't get rid of them it does make me think that, of those teachers. things bother me because there have been some teachers that you're like, you should have retired 15 years ago because you obviously don't care anymore. Yeah. Why are you still here? Get out. And they're like, actually, what are you going to do? I have tenure. Like you can't, I, I don't really know how that all works. I together. think the tenure is a little is that different? different, but oh, I still hate it. I'm like, but no, it's the I same kind of concept. To... Tenure. I think it actually is designed to, it, it's kind of, you put your time in. You know, you put 20 years in, go ahead and take it easy now, and we'll still pay you. But that's not fair to my child that you decide to take it easy. I, I think you're you're right, but I for from what I know of tenure, most of what I've seen is more of like professors in like universities, and it, it is kind of, okay, you've got, you know, tenure. Why don't well, you just it, teach one class instead of, you know, yourself, six class? And... But, uh-uh, I don't know. And but yeah, that's another you, you end up with people that potentially aren't the best and they're protected by yeah. the unions and there's not much that can be done about it. 
because they've already signed, you know, contracts saying they won't get any, you know, won't get rid of anybody without union approval or whatever. Well, right now they have a National Labor Relations Board, and it is set up. There are five people that are appointed by the president and approved by the Senate, and they are on five-year terms. So one gets swapped out every year, and I kind of wonder how they set that up, where they're like, you're year number one. You get yeah. one year. <laughs> or, I don't know, it'd be interesting. But then they have a council. So there's three parts. There's the board, the council, and the regional offices. And the council has four-year term. Though I, I don't know how many people are on it, more than five. And then um, they have the regional offices that are around the country. And they are they conduct elections where they ask different people in different companies if they want to start a union, which I found kind of interesting. And then their second purpose is to stop unfair labor practices, which I think is great. Like, yeah. I, I do think, yeah, that's what the union should be for. It should be like... No, really, you need to behave as a in a better way as a company instead of. Um, it, it, it's nice to do it in that manner rather than if you don't behave the way you want, we're going to burn your stuff down. <laughs> like, to, you know, there to, hasn't been that much of that since. Well, since that's true, the but there was a good stretch of time here that I got in my 1870s. notes. That, yeah, that, that was kind of the that was so the way. I I do think that there was another economic down in the 1870s there was and that is why everyone was so upset the 1870s had a big one um and things were you know shrinking and the the money just wasn't there so mm-hmm. yeah well, the railroad having... companies started i think in one of the years something like 76 railroad companies folded in like Whoa. one year sort of thing and you i would never up... imagine there were 76 yeah, well, I think at one point there were, and then they start folding and getting bought out, and then all yeah. of a sudden, you know, three guys own all the railroads. But, but yeah, the, a lot of these things are caused by recessions. There was or yeah. depressions. Eighteen seventies had one. Eighteen nineties had one, and so that you know the companies respond by cutting wages and jobs, and yeah, people like respond in other ways. Post World War Two as well. So, yeah, that was kind of a scattered, we went a little uh, all over the place, but... Uh, but that's how, that's how history works, that's we've how it learned. Works. It, it threads and out. That's how we works. We find, you know, we find right. something interesting, and all of a sudden we're down that, and uh, <laughs> a lot of rabbit holes out there. Yep. Lots of good information and a good time to remind ourselves of that portion of history that we tend to overlook. That is true. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Bye.